0: through Colossians. Today we will be looking at verse 8, but we're going to back up and read beginning in verse 1. So Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The Christian life is a battle. It is a battle that Christians are called upon to engage in. Now, as we do this, we know that It is Christ Jesus who is our conqueror. He is our king. He is the one to whom we uh, hitch ourselves to, so to speak. His victory is our victory. We trust that he keeps and saves to the uttermost all who are born again, all who believe in him and who have been made new by the Spirit of God within. We rest in the work of Christ on behalf of sinners. His righteousness earned and given to believers, his death and resurrection on our behalf, that we might be forgiven of our sins and granted eternal life. And so we find our comfort in this, we find our hope in this, our joy and our rest in this. We take courage here in what Christ has done for his children. Nevertheless, it is clear in the Bible that God's sovereignty in saving his people and keeping them to the end is not a recipe for laziness. This is not a teaching that is to induce Christians to lay down our spiritual arms in order to just simply coast or float through our days. Jesus himself, if you recall from our time in Luke, gave many parables and many teachings to his disciples, telling them to stay awake imploring them to be alert, to be watchful, to be careful, to not fall asleep, as he said, but to live as if it is the daytime. This is, of course, the same Jesus that assured his disciples that nobody could snatch them out of his hand and that he would raise them up on the last day. Likewise, Paul is the preacher of God's majestic sovereignty in election, to save, and in the entire process of salvation. Indeed, in all things God is sovereign, Paul preaches. And yet that same Paul also exhorted Christians to be alert. Now these two realities of God's sovereignty to save and to keep his people, and the call for Christians to be on guard and to be careful, these things are present side by side because... Among other things, one of the means that God sovereignly uses to preserve His children is giving us warnings and summoning us to be alert. This is one of the ways in which He preserves us and keeps us, by warning us. And so we read this and we take heed. We take heed. And one of these calls to be alert is found in verse 8 of Colossians chapter 2, which we're looking at today. Now last week, if you recall, we looked at verses 6 and 7, where Paul admonishes us to continue on walking or living our lives as we received Christ. That is, he's telling us to continue on by faith and in the faith, holding fast to the truths of the gospel, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And now as we get to verse 8, he gives the flip side of that coin. So he tells us to carry on in Christ as we received him. And now he says to be alert that you're not carried away from him. And so we're going to walk through verse 8 together. And we're going to look first at the command, namely to avoid captivity. Second, we're going to look at the nature of the threat. That is philosophy, which is not in accordance with Christ. And then we're going to spend some time applying this text to some very real and present threats that are carrying off professing Christians today. So first we have the command. The command. Paul writes, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Be watchful. Watch out. See to it no one takes you captive. It's one thing if you were to just read verses 6 and 7 about continuing on in Christ and then just simply think, okay, I just keep believing what I've believed. You know, stay here. No problem. But it's another thing to know that there are people coming to drag you away from that. It would be... It's one thing to carry a rare and precious jewel on some journey somewhere somewhere the country or something that wouldn't be terribly hard just stick it in your pocket but it's another thing to carry that rare jewel on that same journey if you know a band of thieves is hot on your tail trying to capture it and haul you away that's a different scenario and this is the imagery that is used here to not be taken captive the imagery is being captured and taken as loot as plunder in war as the prize of an enemy now this is not a physical reality here but a spiritual one being carried off into the slavery of error and so this is what yet one more place in scripture that reminds us of the importance of discernment and it reminds us of the reality of false teachers And wicked men who would lead people astray. Christians simply cannot afford to be naive about this reality. And the one who is or who thinks there's no one coming to enslave them is in the gravest danger of all. The person who doesn't realize they're standing in the middle of a battlefield. So the word of God says, see to it that no one takes you captive. So that's the command to avoid captivity. And then he elaborates on the threat. So see to it, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so this threat that Paul sees coming, that he's warning us about, comes by means of philosophy and empty deceit that is not in accordance with Christ. Now the word philosophy is a broad term. It's a broad term now, and it was a broad term in Paul's day. It could refer then to Greek philosophers and to their systems of thought. But it was also used to describe different systems of belief about the Old Testament as well. So, for example, the beliefs of the Pharisees and Sadducees were sometimes described as philosophy. A dictionary de- definition today of philosophy says it's the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. It's seeking to address and to answer some of the fundamental questions about life and about reality. Things like, what is truth? Is there truth? Why are we here? What are we? What is our purpose? How do we know what's true? If, truth is such a th- if there is such a thing as truth. What is the best way to live? What is ethical? What's moral? What's immoral? All of these things and more are the subject of philosophical musings. And so some people think that Paul here rips all types of philosophy as if it's all bad, but that's not really what this is. Um, In a a real sense, philosophy is inescapable. Uh, you, You might be maybe more familiar with the concept of having a biblical worldview. You might know that phrase maybe a little better. That is the idea of trying to Uh, view everything through the lens of the Bible. Trying to understand our world and the things that happen through the lens of the Bible. To think biblically. And when you seek to do this, you are basically doing the work of philosophy. And So the issue is not whether we're philosophical, but whether it is in accordance with Christ or not. That's Paul's concern. And so the philosophy Paul's against is that which is empty deceit. Now, there are two things stated here. He has uh, by philosophy and empty deceit. And together, they make up really one concept, one conceptual entity. Paul's concern is philosophy or ways of thinking that are empty deceptions. They are what he has already described back in verse, verse 4, when he said that true wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ, and then added, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That's philosophy that's empty deception. It's the same idea here. Be on guard against deceptive philosophies and arguments. In verse 23, he's going to go on to say that these have an appearance of wisdom, but really nothing more. The thing that makes these philosophies wrong is that they are in accordance with or they come from or are consistent with human tradition and elemental spirits or elementary principles of the world. That is to say, these philosophies that he warns about are those which are not from God and they're not consistent with divine revelation. Rather, they are human, merely human and worldly. Now the best interpretation of the phrase elemental spirits of the world is debated. Uh, Elemental spirits, that's really one word in Greek and that's really the subject of the debate. The question is, is this speaking of spiritual forces as the ESV has it, elemental spirits, or is it speaking of basic principles of the world as the ESV footnote has it? And I would submit to you that the footnote is a better translation. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that now. Uh, I'll be happy to talk about it later if you want. Uh, it'll come up again in verse 20, the same word. And uh, maybe we'll say more then. But in Hebrews 5, in verse 12, the same word is used. And I think there it very clearly means basic principles. When he talks about how the Hebrews needed to learn the basic principles of the oracles of God, of the word of God again. And I think that's the best way to take it here. It's basic principles of the world. Now, I'll just add to, regardless, at the end of the day, the, the outcome and application to us is going to be the same. These are bad things. The source is not according to Christ. These are philosophies that have their root in unbiblical untruth. And so, At the end of the day, they're still to be avoided, whichever way that is uh, interpreted, that that phrase. And so if it's the case that this is talking about basic principles of the world, then what Paul is saying here is that these philosophies are according to human traditions and worldly principles. That is, there are worldly ways of thinking. Philosophies which seem wise, but are in fact foolish before God. They're vanities. They're empty. They're deceptions. And what he has in mind here are specifically the types of errors in philosophy that would result in being taken captive, led astray from the faith, led astray from Christ and the truths of the gospel if these are believed and taken in and held with any measure of consistency. And so I think, I don't think Paul's talking here really primarily about reasonable differences and in interpretation about secondary matters in, in the Bible or in the scriptures. I think we ought to desire to think biblically in every single way. But we recognize there are some disagreements. For example, on elemental spirits or elemental principles, those kinds of disagreements are not what he has in mind here. These are worldly philosophies that lead away from Christ, that would lead you away from the truth of the gospel. In verse 16 and following, Paul's going to tell us a little more about what the specific philosophies were that were troubling the Colossians. They were worldly principles like asceticism as a means of godliness. And there's more, and we'll get to those in verse 16. Uh, But here in verse 8, he's first establishing the more broad principle. The danger is any philosophy, worldview, that is not according to Christ, that doesn't fit with the gospel. It doesn't fit with Christ. It does not fit with his word, but would draw believers away from Christ. Now, in light of that, there's almost unending ways that this can be applied. Human, worldly, unbiblical philosophies and worldviews are legion. We can be seduced into error from basically every direction and so I would just encourage you to examine yourself for worldly philosophy for worldly patterns and elements of unbiblical worldviews and thinking that you've perhaps absorbed maybe unwittingly even to consider where you might need to repent of these things and be renewed in your mind And in your practice. And in many ways this is something that we ought to be doing and should be doing continually and consistently. And will be doing really the rest of our lives. As we are being sanctified and built up into maturity. Putting off worldly ways of thinking and being conformed to the image of Christ as we find it in scripture. And so this calls us to consider our lives and where you need to confess to God, to trust in Christ, and be renewed in your thinking and your practice. So there are lots of ways that this text applies. But in in the time remaining, I want to apply this to a specific way in which empty philosophy is presently drawing many professing Christians into captivity. And this is the issue of racism. This topic is perhaps the major topic of conversation these days. It's up there certainly with the coronavirus. But it's a major topic of conversation these days. And we are being told and fed a narrative about racism, one that many Christians have wholesale bought into and are just turning around and trumpeting, when in fact it is one of these things that Paul warns about, philosophy that has an appearance of wisdom but is actually not in accordance with Christ, that's not consistent with the Scriptures. Now before going any further, I do want to give a caveat in what, before I get into this, I am not in any way denying the presence of racism if we define it as enmity or hatred, which can express itself in various ways, hatred shown towards people simply on the basis of their skin color or their ethnicity, or another way Hatred in the form of a sense of superiority over others due to one's own skin color or ethnicity. This happens. It has happened in history. It's a form of hatred and it is unquestionably sinful. And there have been great evils committed out of this type of hatred the world over in every society throughout history. including North America and indeed inequalities do exist in society and nothing I'm about to say am I suggesting that there's nothing that could use changing in society that there are no problems but we cannot fix any of those issues if we misdiagnose the problem and then present the wrong cure. And this is what is happening in society, and Christians are getting sucked in along with it. And as Christians, moreover, we will not do anyone any eternal good if we lose the gospel along the way in trying to help society out. So that's really where my concern is. So today white supremacy, or whiteness, is being put forth as the main problem at the root of society's ills. You may have thought that white supremacy had been pushed to the margins of society, perhaps still being clung to by a few very odd and sick people. You may have thought that by and large racist laws were more or less a thing of the past, having been essentially confronted and dealt with. Yes, racism exists, but we're not really a racist society per se. This may have been how you've thought, but we are told this is not so. We're now informed by society's elites that racism is, in fact, an intrinsic part of Western civilization. Which is to say, racism is systemic. It's not just about concrete acts or feelings of hatred toward other people, but rather racism, they say, is infused into every institution in society. The American Psychological Association, the APA, recently posted an article affirming the following, quote, every institution in America is born from the blood of white supremacist ideology and capitalism and that's the disease. That's really what systemic racism means. Every institution born out of this white supremacy and notice that's the disease of our time. And these same sentiments extend to the rest of Western civilization, to us as well. It's not just America. Our colonial past is considered proof positive of present-day racism in all of our institutions. To further the argument, it is believed that all knowledge is simply an artifact of a given society at a given time. In other words, there's no universal truths. And they say that which we have traditionally been told is true is really all designed to keep the dominant group, that is, white people, in power and in control. Therefore, things like reason, logic, and free speech, these are rejected today as tools of the white man to maintain power. That's what those are. Why can't we reason things out with people and have a conversation anymore and use logic? Because that is a tool used, they say, to keep white people in power and authority. Power is hidden in the words we use, they say. And there's, philosoph- there's philosophers like Jacques Derrida and others who are all about this, that they've drawn from and has affected today's world. So the idea is power is hidden in the words we use. So our conversations, the idea of free speech, which we would say gives us permission and the right to speak, really those are just tools for white men to assert power and dominance. And this is then the reason why society is constantly trying to control the language we use. Right? The rise of politically correct speech, things you're allowed to say and other things you're not to say. Hate speech, microaggressions, because every interaction and conversation is a, is, a, is a way that you're trying to exert power. So if you say something that would contradict them or offend them, it's some sort of hate, it's some sort of microaggression. There are certain things you can and cannot say, because power is hidden in your words we use. And so reason, logic, free speech, rejected. Further, history and Christianity are all part of this system that promotes white supremacy and therefore needs to be dismantled. This is why Christianity is so assaulted in our society while Islam, for example, gets a free pass. You've wondered about that, haven't you? At some point, I'm sure. It's because Christianity is part of the core of Western civilization while Islam is not. And Of course, there's other structures in our society. Our understanding of sexuality, marriage. This is all part of the structure of society used to keep white people in power, in authority. And so we have the rise of the LGBTQ movement trying to upset this order. This is why an organization like Black Lives Matter makes that part of their What We Believe platform. Again, the importance of families. Black Lives Matter on their website says, quote, this is under their what we believe, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. You might think, what does that have to do with racism? Well, it's because the family structure in their mind is Western prescribed. It's not a universal truth that a husband and wife and then children, that's that's a good thing and healthy for society. That's just a Western idea. And this promotes white supremacy. We must do away with it. So BLM has on their website, we disrupt this family structure. Likewise, our understanding of gender, guess what? Also part of this system that needs to be undone. And so they're undoing it. And today, you can have up to 130 different genders, they say. Even things like mathematics. I kid you not, there was recently a dust up on Twitter because a professor, and I can't remember what the university was. It was either Indiana or Illinois, somewhere there, made a comment that two plus two can equal five. Not always, but it can equal five. And there were a whole bunch of people trying to defend that claim and trying to give instances and examples where 2 plus 2 might equal 5 and it was never it never worked it never worked but all of these things are part of the system that is racist and explicitly or implicitly promoting white power especially that of white straight cisgender males and so we're told we should be open to other ways of knowing Or other sources of truth, including spiritism, superstition, emotional responses, that's feelings, and one's lived experiences. All of these things are equally valid sources of truth. In fact, if the source of truth is found to be in a minority, whether it is a racial minority or a so-called sexual minority, then it's actually more legitimate. Because they're from an oppressed class. And so this You know the phrase intersectionality. That's where you just add up all the different ways that you're oppressed. And the more oppressed you are, the more valued your voice is. Again, this is assumed to be true. This is the way it is. It's just more valuable. And this is another reason it's taboo to speak today or critique another culture besides your own. Because that would be to assert your own culture's truth over another's culture, another culture's truth. And so truth and knowledge are relative. They're just cultural constructs. And so we have this mash of Marxism and postmodern philosophy all coming together. I trust you can see how this is not how the Bible describes reality, where this clashes with Scripture, most obvious of which is whether or not truth is just culturally constructed or whether there is objective truth. Further, we're told that if you're a white person, you're not allowed a defense in the matter. In fact, your words of defense are part of how you try to maintain dominance. So your only option is to sit in humble silence and simply agree quietly. In fact, the moment you object, it's actually taken as evidence of your guilt. This is w- called white fragility, if you've heard that term, uh, popularized by uh, a book by that title by Robin D'Angelo. The idea is white people don't like being accused of being racist because they're actually racist and they don't want to admit it and so they squirm and deny it which then just proves that they're racist so it's a rhetorical device the technical term I guess is Kafka trap it's a rhetorical device whereby an accusation is made in this case you're a white supremacist and any denials taken as evidence well of course a white supremacist is going to deny it because you're fragile and you're, you're, you're just uncomfortable with discussing how horrible of a person you are. It's a heads-eye-win, tails-you-lose scenario. You can agree with me in my claim that you're a racist, or you can deny it, and I will take that as proof that you're a racist. So again, this is not, let's have a reasoned conversation about Racism and about issues in society. Those conversations could be had. But this is just cutting people out of the conversation altogether. That's only having invalid opinions. In fact, evidence and proof are not really necessary to prove that racism exists since, again, there are supposedly different ways of knowing what is true. You might produce evidence that contradicts claims of white supremacy or racism, but it doesn't matter, nor does it disprove their claim, because there's different ways of knowing things, including one's own feelings or lived experience. So you can can produce evidence to the contrary, but it's not going to change their mind, because they have their own way of knowing what's true, their own feelings or some experience they've had. So if, for example, you point out that in America Asians often do better than white people in various areas of attainment and so on, and you would, might produce that as perhaps evidence in the discussion that there isn't some sort of systemic racism and white supremacy, that will not be taken as evidence against their view. Rather, it simply shows that those Asians have been infected with whiteness and so whiteness is a common word. And you don't have to be white to have whiteness. Are you confused yet? The disregard for evidence can also be seen in other situations too. For example, on Black Lives Matter website, They cite the 2014 shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, which you might remember all the protests there outside of St. Louis. They say that this was a galvanizing moment for their movement. When they say Michael Brown was murdered by a police officer. Well, since that time, three separate investigations have all acquitted the police officer upon examining all available evidence and eyewitness testimony saying in the end he acted lawfully and actually in self-defense even this includes the original investigation under the obama administration with his own attorney general eric holder agreeing with the conclusions of the seven-month investigation that happened after the shooting and it includes an investigation that just wrapped up a month or two ago in 2020 led by a guy who investigated with the goal and hope of prosecuting this officer. And even he got to the end of it and said there was nothing there to do that he couldn't. The evidence wasn't there to support it. But evidence doesn't really matter. Because, after all, racists would acquit an officer, wouldn't they? So, Black Lives Matter and others still refer to this event as a racially motivated murder, evidencing systemic racism among police. And one of the consequences is, if they're going to point out to an example like this, which turns out to be fraudulent, then they lose any credibility and any trust they might have among people who are honestly open to evidence of problems, of racism. And ironically, it diminishes where real racism does, in fact, occur. And I think biblically, as we read from Deuteronomy, this would be classified as malicious witness, false accusation. So this is not justice. You can't just say it's murder, and it just is, if we are thinking biblically. And the end goal of all this, you might wonder, all this systemic problems in everything in society, the end goal of this is to destroy these systems that are beyond repair and usher in a new Marxist style utopian society. This is their hope for humanity. Again, at least two of the three Black Lives Matter founders are trained Marxists. They say as much. Karl Marx saw history without God leading to a classless society through revolution. And many maintain some form of this thinking. It's not according to Christ. It's not Christian. It's an atheistic worldview. And it's an atheistic, unbiblical Understanding of history and the purpose of history. It is not centered on Christ but on man. And as with the Russian Revolution, Marx's ideas result in bloodshed and widespread oppression of the masses, not equality. Now, if this claim that they want society to be torn to the ground seems conspiratorial, this idea that the elites want to remake society. I would just encourage you to look very carefully at what's happening with rioting south of our border. If you're like me, calls to defund the police seem like a really bad idea at times like that, and really like a very strange solution. But if the goal is revolution, to tear down society, to remake it, if you think the systems, like police forces, are unredeemable the way they are, then it starts to make some measure of sense. Chaos serves that purpose. And this is what, again, some of these postmodern philosophers, like Foucault, or especially Derrida, argued. You, you deconstruct society. You find problems in everything how it all supports, in this case, white supremacy, and then you, you deconstruct it, you, you tear those things down, why they're terrible. That's how you lead to this revolution. So that's what's happening. Now, that the world would act in an unbiblical and illogical way is not surprising. But sadly, many Christians today are being sucked into this. They are baptizing this language and many of these concepts and claiming them as Christian. And this really is my main concern. All of what I've just said is to help us see that there's more under the surface of slogans like Black Lives Matter. It's not simply an innocuous hashtag. And yet evangelicals are being sucked right in. And we hear many of these same claims in Christian circles. Society is hopelessly infused with racism. It is continually trumpeted as a fact that racism is systemic by evangelical leaders. And many point to the same incidents as proof. Cases like Michael Brown. When that killing occurred, evangelicals rose up all over about racism. And this being a very clear example of it. And even last week... Last Sunday, read an article on the Gospel Coalition lamenting the shootings in Kenosha, Wisconsin, if you followed these things. They're parroting the same lies about what happened that the mainstream media did. That it's simply an unarmed black man shot in the back seven times, making it sound as if he's going for a walk as it's happening. While a white kid just goes off and shoots into a crowd of protesters with basically no consequences. And the only explanation of this in the article is racism. But again, as details emerge in time, and the story starts to become a little clearer, it's just not that simple. Even the New York Times acknowledged this, albeit late. They acknowledged this white kid, was being chased, and then he was being shot at before finally returning fire. But yet this, this Gospel Coalition article just lumps this guy in with that Charleston church mass shooter, Dylan Roof, if you remember that from a few years ago. This guy just goes in, just starts shooting up in a church. It's just not the same thing. To just, to just say racism, it's an over, overly simplistic view of the issues. And again, this seems to fit the category of a false witness. Of a malicious witness. We live in a time when motive is just simply assumed. I mean, racism might be part of the motive, but how would we know that the moment it happens, without some evidence, if we haven't just prejudged the situation. And that's exactly what's happening. Now, I'm not saying the cop was right in what he did to shoot that man in Kenosha. I don't know the whole story. I'll, I'm, I'll wait for the investigation and all that to come out. But the Gospel Coalition would have us think, at least this one writer, that it's all evidence that black and brown bodies are simply disposable. And they don't just see it in secular society. Many evangelicals insist that systemic racism has infected the institution of the church. This is where it starts to get even a little more tricky and insidious. Remember, institutions with systemic racism and problems need to be destroyed. Was well, this what these evangelicals want when they use this phrase? Well, I'm sure many wouldn't quite go that far, but they've adopted the language that implies this. They're borrowing from this philosophy. You might think, or someone might say, "Well, don't be ridiculous. Of course, they think the church can repent and get right. They're just pointing out that racism exists and that Christians aren't immune from it. Well, is that all? Is that all that this is? Anthony Bradley is a professor at King's College in New York and a fairly prominent even voice within evangelicalism. In a since-deleted tweet, as far as I can tell, he said, White evangelicals have never had the gospel. When asked to clarify, you mean the gospel of salvation, his response was, Exactly. And then there's the quote from Jamar Tisby in the New York Times. Again, a contributor to Gospel Coalition, a a racial expert. And I I mentioned this quote last week. Again, this is in the New York Times. Quote, white Christians have to face the possibility that everything they have learned about how to practice their faith has been designed to explicitly or implicitly reinforce a racist structure. And he indicates that there's perhaps nothing worth salvaging amongst white Christians. Where is this thinking coming from? Is that driven from reading the scriptures and then comparing that with what is preached in churches in America? I don't think so. It's coming from these empty philosophies. Another example, more recently in the last week or so, you maybe saw videos Of a preacher named Eric Mason. He's a pastor in Philadelphia. I have a book of his on my shelf that was given me at a conference I went to. I think it was maybe T4G several years ago. So he's a voice within evangelicalism is what I'm saying. And in this sermon he quotes from Ephesians 4.18 which says, They are darkened in their understanding. He's talking about Gentiles. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. And then he says right afterwards, repeatedly, whiteness has caused blindness of heart. And he repeats that a couple times. Whiteness has caused blindness of heart. Is that what Ephesians 4.18 is saying? Whiteness has caused blindness of heart? And he says white people want to subjugate black people. That's what he's saying. And these statements are just applied broadly to white people. You and I are guilty of this just because we're white. I mean, it's the same inflammatory rhetoric that's in the world aimed at others, uh, those in the church, in the evangelical church. Where is this sin of whiteness in the Bible? What is it? And, and then, evangelicals who claim to be so sensitive to racism refuse to call out... Racism when it's against white people and This is maybe the most damning evidence that this unbiblical world philosoph- worldly philosophy has infected Evangelicalism only in some sort of Marxist power and oppressor View of the world is it okay for one group to say this kind of thing about another wholesale and have it be okay? whiteness causes hardness of heart. Imagine for a moment you turned that around and said something like blackness causes hardness of heart. Just imagine you would be rightly ridiculed for that nonsense. But you turn it around the other way, no problem. No one says anything. because again in this new new way of thinking in this new philosophy a minority cannot be a racist and so such language is not hateful it's not careless so you see in this we have unequal scales this is not justice Evangelicals are trying hard to wed the Bible to this worldly philosophy, a philosophy which does say that the Bible itself and Christianity are part of the problem. And so I ask, how long can this go on, trying to fit these two things together before the whole of the scriptures and the gospel are scuttled all together? Indeed, if white evangelicals have not had the gospel, and if everything we teach is perhaps racist, then what is the gospel? You see you see where this leads? We don't need critical theory to analyze our world. We have the scriptures. Sin, we know, stands at the root of all of this. And sin does manifest itself in all kinds of different ways in our world, including animosity and hatred of other people because they look or sound different than us. That sin has... Is causing problems in our different institutions. This is not a new revelation. We know there are unjust laws, abortion, and again. Abortion is just mysteriously absent from all of this, all of these conversations. Why? Because, again, assault on the family. That's part of the, the goal. So, abortion's not really a big deal because it helps support their wild views of sexuality and assaults on families. This is why, when people talk about issues of fatherlessness and broken homes as contributing, problems, these are dismissed. They can't be part of the problem because the nuclear family, father, mother, and children, is part of the problem in their view. We know sin stands at the root of mankind's problems the world over. Sin manifests itself in different ways at different times within society, individually, and broadly. And we know, of course, that sin is the great leveler of mankind because it leaves every man and woman from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue guilty before God. And likewise, Christ is the Savior of men and women from every tribe, nation, and tongue, he is the only mediator between God and man. Wherever you might be from, whatever particular sins you have committed, Christ is the only way to the Father. There will be no utopian society. Because of sin. Mankind cannot bring this about. Marxists of all stripes are wrong about this. The world they seek will not come. According to the scriptures. Rather, the kingdom of God has come in part. And it will come yet in full. And it will not be brought about by your and my doing. But it will come when Christ Jesus the Lord returns. The sins and the ails of this world are dealt with by Jesus. You remember back to Colossians 1 and verses 15 to 20. How he is preeminent in all things. Including the original creation and the new creation. That he is working now as he redeems a people. And when Christ returns and will rule forever with his people. The new heaven and new earth. Christ is the one who solves this problem, this sin. And the church's mission then, as we've seen, as Paul says, is to proclaim him. And this is what's lost in all of this mess. Rather than standing shoulder to shoulder... To preach Christ, evangelicals are being split apart by accusations from within of systemic racism that can never seemingly be fully repented of. It doesn't matter how many times you acknowledge past wrongs. It'll never go away. It'll never really be washed away. After all, how do you wash away whiteness? These are grievances that just don't go away. Now, we should want justice in this life. But of all people, we should recognize that on this side of the fall, perfect, righteous justice will be elusive. And so we want to call for justice where we can. But first, we want to proclaim Christ. The Savior, the hope of mankind, the perfect judge. And we want to implore people to trust in Him and to seek His mercy first because His justice will be perfect when He comes and brings it about. There are so many things that could be said here but I I don't want to go on forever. Uh, I am going to add uh, some resources together that if you want to study these things out a little further, um, I'll I'll post those in the, the email this week that goes out. And you can peruse them as you wish. But my desire, church, is not to just get up here and rant or you know, just unleash some fleshly response. My burden is that we might heed Paul's words here from Colossians 2 verse 8 in this hour because this issue is not going away. But as society rages against its own foundations, as people insist that truth is relative and not objective, that you don't have a voice, as they insist that Scripture and the Gospel itself is said to be a form of white supremacy, well, by God's grace, we, church, hold the line on this. Whether the Gospel is attacked from within evangelicalism or from without, We are to continue on as we received Christ Jesus the Lord. Again, as Paul writes here, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. As Jesus himself said, Father, sanctify us in this truth as your son prayed for his people. Father, give us courage to hold fast to this reality that your word is the truth. Father, I pray that you would help us to have humility to examine ourselves if we are accused of sin. And to deal as honestly as we can with our own hearts. To not excuse past sins that we've committed or others have committed. But to also hold the line of what your your word declares to be true. Father, I pray for courage in these days. I pray that there would be a renewal that you would convince and convict people of the folly of present-day worldly philosophy that we've been talking about. And I pray that people would, as they are forced to examine what is true, that many more would yet be drawn to your word to see its truth for all time and to flee to Christ, your son, for the forgiveness of their own sin. Father, may we be done with grievances, but to recognize that in Christ all sins are washed away. Father, make us people of the book of your word that we might continually test our beliefs and submit them to your word. Father, increase our understanding of your word. Show us where we err and bring us into conformity that you might be glorified and honored. Father, we thank you and praise you that Christ is the one who will come again and establish the new heavens and new earth. May we be confident and convinced of this and not easily shaken even when we look out and see folly in our world. Father, we just pray that you'd be gracious and merciful to us and to unbelievers all around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.